0: Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Michael Pagano from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Michael is Dean of the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs. Additionally, he's a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, co-editor with Susan Clark of Urban Affairs Review, and faculty fellow of UIC's Great Cities Institute. The focus of his work is municipal finance and its relationship to the intergovernmental system. According to annual surveys by UIC and the National League of Cities, Cities have been eliminating jobs, decreasing infrastructure investments, and scaling back services for more than a decade. For many municipalities, the Great Recession just exacerbated these trends, endangering these communities' ability to invest in future economic growth. Furthermore, the changing nature of municipal revenue structures affects land use policy and the nature of future development projects. Michael is here tonight to discuss the ongoing and likely lasting effects of the Great Recession on municipal revenue structures, as well as decision making regarding the type, timing, and location of new development. Please join me in welcoming Michael Pagano.
1: Thank you, David, for the very kind uh, comments. He failed to note, uh, however, that uh, David is an alumnus of our illustrious program, and uh, welcome. And I should also add that I am not an alumnus of the master's in urban planning program at UIC, nor of any urban planning program anywhere. I'm the Dean of the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs, and the public affairs refers primarily to public administration. I'm a professor of public administration and, uh, and public finances primarily. Um, but my work has always crossed into areas of primarily of community development, neighborhood development, and infrastructure development, and we'll be talking a bit about infrastructure development here. And I've always had an interest as a graduate student in uh, in planning. I, I always thought the planners had some of the more interesting issues to look at when it comes to city building and city development. Um, but and I also found the planners, and I suspect most of you have some connection to planning, either as a planner or you do planning, uh, like me, without having the degree. found the planners were the real dreamers, the people that had ideas and And not not always with their feet on the ground, but always dreaming about what ought to be, which I've always enjoyed. And it reminded me of um, an an old New Yorker uh, cartoon from long ago in which uh, you've seen the box scores in baseball in the top of the first inning, bottom of the first inning, and it showed a running nine-inning box uh, score uh, card for uh, for baseball in which uh, the teams were the realists and the idealists. And the realists score two runs in the top of the first, and the idealists, they don't score any, of course. And the top of the second, the realists score four runs, and the idealists don't score any runs. And You go through each of the innings, and the realists are always scoring runs, and the idealists, they never, never score a run. The final score, according to the New Yorker, was idealists one, realists zero. So I, I, always, I always look to that as sort of inspiration for, you may not be making all the difference in the world today, but in the end, it's the ideas that count and it's the ideas that the planners bring forth for cities that will really make a difference in the next century. For those people to look back to what we we're thinking about now, I, I think uh, the, the fruits of their labor, the fruits of your labor will, will, uh, sh- will bear well into the next, uh, well into the next century, actually. Uh, David asked me to talk about the work that I've been doing for the last many years, and so I've combined a couple of sets of work uh, on city finances into this presentation that I'm referring to as the Great Recession, municipal budgets, and land development. Uh, the land development part, I think, is something that uh, we we tend to not think about as clearly and carefully as we should. So I will get to that toward the uh, the middle of the presentation, and then I want to talk a bit about uh, thoughts and ideas that that we might uh, consider in this new era. And I do consider this to lay out my prejudice and biases here. I do think that we are entering an era that is really unlike what we have uh, witnessed in the last 40 or 50 or 70 years. We're moving into some of the economists refer to it as a new normal. Um, if it's not a new normal, at least it's a very different than what we've had before, meaning that Ideas and practices that we've tried in the last decade or 20 or 30 years ago probably aren't appropriate for thinking of uh, building and financing cities in the future. That's that's sort of the bias. So here's the outline of the – oh, by the way, as I was telling David, um, this is a great – one of my favorite watercolor paintings of Chicago looking uh, – a view from uh, 18th Street. It was uh, uh, done by an artist. Now an artist, she was the director of the uh, Voorhees Center for Neighborhood and Community Improvement that is part of uh, the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs. She's, she retired about 10 years ago, has taken up painting, and uh, just stunning. any anyway, rate, this is the outline. I'm going to talk about the contemporary situation of city finances in the United States and then move into some challenges, talk about options and then a sustainable fiscal ar- architecture. For the last 24 years I've been involved with the National League of Cities in an annual study they do in which they survey cities uh, across the country and they ask questions primarily about the fiscal condition of the cities and specifically data about the general fund of municipalities. So we ask the CFOs of, uh, of cities with populations over 50,000 and with a sample of cities between 10 and 50,000 that we've been uh, uh, doing it uh, well, this shows 1990. We've actually been doing this since 1986. My involvement has been since 1990, and we ask them: Are cities better able or less able to meet their financial needs in the current fiscal year, the fiscal year in which the survey is administered? And it's really it's administered between April and June uh, every year, and you can see, you can see that um, um, nothing unusual here. Uh, the CFOs are more optimistic that they'll be able to meet their financial needs when there's there are periods of uh, of economic growth and economic growth usually translates into uh, additional revenues to the city so that the city can provide more services and you can see in the current uh, era or at least in 2009, 10 and 11 uh, there weren't very many cities that found that they could meet their current uh, financial needs uh, in uh, that year. When we asked them predict, to predict about next year, so the the, the last bar was uh, from last June, uh, June and July, and we asked them, well, what do you think about next year? Will you be in a better position to meet your financial needs than the, than the current year? So thinking about fiscal year 13, in fiscal year 12, uh, a, a little more than half the, municip- uh, the CFOs and municipalities thought that they would be in a little better position, or at least a somewhat better position than they were in the, in the, in the prior year. So this, this is an encouraging sign. Um, I would also argue that it's a false sign, and we'll get to that in just a second. The, the, the data that uh, we've collected are data on general fund revenues and expenditures, uh, the focus on the general fund rather than on all funds of municipalities, I think is important to understand what the underlying economic, uh, the economic base of the city has been doing to the, to the, uh, the city's ability to meet its uh, service delivery obligations. And the reason for that is that what's excluded from the general fund are typically uh, the enterprise funds that, are, that depend on primarily on fees that are paid for the consumption of services, the debt funds, so you're not getting any bond revenues in this or any bond payments uh, from this. Uh, you're just looking at the general fund. This is where most of the operating expenses of the city are, public safety, transportation, general administration and operations, and the urban planning departments as well. Uh, And this is a plot of the year-to-year growth, not a dollar amount, but a year-to-year growth or or change, I should say. There were declines in some years uh, over the last number of years. And you can see in the last uh, seven or eight years of this survey that the, the lines become negative. Now, the bars are negative. This is constant dollar. This isn't current dollar. We use a deflator of the, of, uh, the Bureau of the Census from uh, NEPA that they uh, calculate what the uh, state and local fiscal deflator is. We apply that here. So even though there was a dollar growth between FY11 and FY12, in constant dollar terms, ah, the airline just stopped. I can hear. Ah. Um, the, whew, I was screaming, wasn't I? I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, the, in the last couple of years, there's been a year-to-year growth in current revenues, but in constant dollar revenues and expenditures, you can see that there's been uh, a, a decline. And it's been fairly dramatic. If you go back to 2007, there was a constant dollar decline, and it became uh, worse and worse year-to-year. Uh, this includes all of the uh, the policy actions of communities. In other words, if they raise taxes or they lower taxes, it was captured uh, in, in these in these data. But as we also all know, and part of the, the uh, purpose of this presentation is to uh, remind us all that um, cities are different. We have 19,000-plus municipalities in the United States, and they are all different creatures and organisms, and they behave in different ways. And in it's part because they depend on different revenue sources. So we started collecting uh, the general fund revenue composition data beginning in 1996, so that you can you can see, and I, I think this is one of uh, the my fun graphics because um, imagine yourself as a municipality in 1999 and 2000, and you're and we all know that the property tax is a very sus, a, a very nice slow growing sustainable reliable uh, revenue source for municipalities, and you're in an area thinking yeah, but look at those blue line those blue bars. I mean, wow! I want to get some of that. I want to, I'd like to have more sales tax, I'd bring more, I was contacted by a county in Georgia at about 1999, I believe it was, and they went through a process of exchanging their properties, for a county, not a city, for exchanging their property tax for a sales tax, and they actually pulled it off. The people voted and they said, sure, we'll do this, this is great, our property taxes for the county will be zero, and our sales tax will be whatever they decided it was, and then a recession hits, 2001, the dot-com bust. Look what the dot-com bust does to property values, as we now have learned since 2007. The red bar is still positive, year to year growth in property tax receipts continued through the dot com bust of two thousand and one and two and even three, whereas retail sales tax collections went year over year in decline for that three year period and What is also kind of interesting for those of you who uh, ask questions of, about the wageless recovery, um, I think if you if you look at the yellow, it looks green there isn 't it It is green If you look at the green bar. Uh, it's, it's primarily in the negative range for most of this uh, period from 1996, especially from 2001 to the present, which suggests that w- there was a wageless recovery. We had uh, more people working at lower s- uh, wages and salaries, or at least they were flat. Again, this is in constant dollars, so if the, if the salaries were flat in constant dollar terms, there was an actually. Uh, a decline, and so now we see in the last three or four years of this uh, of this time series that the bars, the, all the bars, are starting to drop below the zero uh, uh, mark, and we're receiving actually fewer dollars the last two years uh, where there was a pickup in um, in retail sales or at least a projection in retail sales receipt growth in 2012 the 2012 if the if your eyesight is really good you can see that it says budget so these were data that we pulled from the 2012 budgets whether those are the actual receipts of revenue we'll find out next year when we go and collect actuals for 2012 and what do cities do uh, cities do not uh, do what uh, some of the people on Wall Street claimed and made a fortune doing, claiming that cities are going to go bankrupt. Cities, for the most part, do not go bankrupt. In fact, most cities don't even have the constitutional authority to go into federal bankruptcy course. Prevented by their state constitutions. There are a few. California does allow its municipalities to go to bankruptcy court, federal bankruptcy courts, after they go through a mediation period, which is quite short. And so now we have three general purpose municipalities in Chapter 9 in California. And only two of those are because of the Great Recession. One was because of events that had happened prior to the Great Recession, and that's Vallejo, which went into Chapter 9 in 2007 or 8, well before the recession started. Why? Because cities have the authority to adjust all kinds of things, including taxes and fees. So this ends this, hiring um, um, in employment. This is what municipalities have done uh, over the last three years in terms of adjusting to their, their fiscal situation. You can see that it's the employment side which has been hit the hardest. As we know that over a half million jobs in the public sector have been lost since the beginning of the Great Recession. Uh, President Obama, much to his credit, spoke about the 4.5 million private sector jobs that were created since 2009 when he became president and was very carefully worded private sector jobs because public sector jobs actually have declined since 2009 by about a half million nationwide. Another, another way of thinking about how cities are performing is to look how much they, they put aside in their savings account. Um, these are unspent revenues in the general fund. They accumulate at the end of the year. If they're not appropriated, they f- roll over into the next fiscal year. They become a cash surplus. Uh, Some cities set them aside in reserve funds. Some cities roll them back over into the general fund as incoming uh, transfers from the previous year. And it becomes something that the city can use to pay for its operations. It's much like a savings account that we have in our households. We go month to month. We spend down our checking to zero. We have savings. There's a little bit more. If we have a little extra in our checking, we'll fold it over into our savings account. We hope we can build that up and maybe take that vacation to the Bahamas one year if we have it up built up enough. And if we don't, well, at least we're going to still be able to pay the rent. We'll be able to buy groceries and pay for our transportation expenses. The ending balances or reserves of municipalities work in much the same way. They, are, are, they grow, they build up during periods of, of economic growth and fiscal growth uh, for purposes such as, uh, well, uh, Hurricane Sandy. Or any, um, if you were, if you remember, gee, it's hard to remember that two years ago, just about this time, uh, we had a 30-some or 20-some inch snowfall, in which we wiped out our salt supplies in about a three-day period. Remember that our salt supplies were wiped out. With the city wasn't, no cities were anticipating that snowfall. Hard to remember when it's 65 degrees outside, isn't? But was, uh, but at that time, municipalities had to buy more salt. Where? The appropriations had been spent already for the year. Most cities spent all of their, uh, their salt and, and snow removal uh, activity in, throughout Illinois and the Midwest uh, by the first week in February. And we know, remember, we actually had more snow after that as well. What did they do? Where did they borrow from? You turn to the ending balances or your reserves to help pay for those unexpected, unanticipated uh, events. Um, it's also a way of demonstrating to Wall Street that, that they have the financial capacity to pay their own bills, and if there's a problem in debt payment, they can reach back into their reserve funds and, uh, and pay off their debt. Um, the, the more important line here is the blue one. It's the actual ending balances, and you can see that over the uh, course of the last 27 or so years, uh, ending balances have grown in almost a secular uh, way over time. Uh, regardless of what happened during a recession. So even during recessionary periods, except for the first one in 1991, uh, 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 cities maintained the growth rate of their ending balances or their savings. While they were cutting back on the provision of services or employment or or other activities, they were holding on to their reserves uh, just in case. Why just in case? Well, in 1986, General revenue sharing is eliminated. The federal government no longer provides much support at all to municipalities. In uh, the, in the uh, uh, early 1990s and again in the early 2000s, one of the first places that states cut is in the area of aid to local governments, primarily municipal governments, not so much aid to school districts, but aid to local governments. Municipalities then realize that they're on their own, or at least they're close to being on their own. They've got to keep the way households do. They have to keep a savings account uh, alive. But you can see what the projection is for fiscal year 12. A, a reduction to 12.7 percent of expenditures is what the, the, the forecast is. We'll see what actually happens when the data come back this year. Um, and I'm you know, just, yeah, highlighting uh, the uh, the three recessions and, and what uh, uh, the actual ending balances were. What are the challenges for municipalities today? Well, here's—I the, the, I enjoy these graphs. They don't have a whole lot to do with what I'm talking about, but look at the employment trends of the United States. The, from this is the post-World War II era to the present, uh, non-farm employment has went from around uh, 45, uh, 45 million to about 130 million in 2012. Um, and okay, so pretty large growth in total employment. But look at manufacturing. This is the one that just is hard to understand. There are fewer, fewer, we we are a nation of 320-some million people. We were only a nation of 160 million in the post-World War II era. So we've doubled our population. We now have fewer actual employees in the manufacturing sector today than we had in 1946. It's the the lowest it has ever been since uh, the end of World War II. Services, we now have... Uh, Almost 90 million people employed in the service sector of the economy. And leisure and hospitality actually employs more people now than the manufacturing sector does at about uh, 12.5 or 13 million people. Why is that important? Well, because one of the things that we do very well is we spend a whole lot on services. We love to buy our accountants and our lawyers, and we love our massage therapists, and we like to go to our workout room. And we do all of those wonderful service things medical facilities and and medical services as well. And if uh, ignore that little crisscross at the beginning, but if you look at about 1962 or 1963, we spent about an equal amount um, on uh, on service-related activities as opposed to consumption goods, tangible goods. Why tangible goods? Because where cities and states uh, employ a sales tax, the sales tax is usually on durable goods, hard goods, shirts, sweaters, appliances, uh, but not on not on services, and yet most of our consumption dollar today, two-thirds of our consumption dollar today is spent on services. Most of those services are not taxed. One major exception, that's the state of Hawaii in which they do tax services, and there's a good reason for that, too. There aren't too many competitors around Hawaii. What's the estimated uh, loss in, in, uh, in sales tax revenue due to e-commerce? Uh, estimated. I haven't seen any any updates to this, but estimated last year of over $12 billion in, in lost uh, uh, commerce on uh, uh, inter- e-commerce commerce that is not taxed, even though it could be taxed because it is durable or tangible goods. It's not taxed because of uh, the interstate commerce clause and Supreme Court rulings. Uh, personal savings. Another interesting graphic. Uh, personal savings. Uh, boy, um, as uh, a parent, you always encourage your child to save for that rainy day. And well, we didn't do that very well. We mostly spent everything that we had. And that's great if you're taxing it. It's not so great when you're not taxing it. And we don't tax savings. So we have a narrowing of the sales tax base because we're buying most of our services rather than consumption goods. And we're saving more. And the more we save, the less that we're spending, therefore the less that we're being taxed. What's our growth industry? It's meds and eds. We know this the five oh one C three growth dilemma. The nonprofit sector about a tenth of the US economy today. Uh, and yet who gets who is exempt from that? Hospitals. Is this a good thing. Education, John and I think it's a good thing. Uh, religious facilities. City of Houston has a lot of mega churches. Churches don't pay anything but they do consume a lot of resources. They are not denied fire and police protection. Station routes are rearranged to assure that there's a smooth uh, flow of traffic around the megachurches, and so the city imposed a drainage fee as, and, uh, as a way of collecting something from that facility in exchange for the provision of services, and it was a drainage fee. How much water is, uh, rolls off the parking lot and into the, uh, the stormwater system you can imagine the controversy that that generated because you're in Chicago. You do know the controversy that that generates. Nonprofits with below 250 will pay uh, 80% of their water use by 2014. When I moved to this fair city in 2001, I used to give lectures on enterprise funds and general uh, and general services and uh, use the argument that technology has allowed for us to charge people for the consumption of goods that have a private quality. That is, I can consume it and you can't. It's, a, it's a, more like a private good. Water's like that. i not realizing that Chicago is one of the last bastions of providing subsidies to the 501c3s through uh, making everybody else pay for their water consumption. Not to say that's a bad thing, but nobody in the city actually voted for that. And we need to talk about it. Brown University. This is Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island suffered mightily during the Great Recession. Providence is no exception. Providence is one of its main employers, not the only main employer. It is the state capital. Is Brown University. Ivy League, very wealthy. Lots of land, lots of real estate, lots of very fancy buildings that are really irreplaceable. I don't even know what the assessed value would be because they can't build buildings like that anymore. And yet, they don't pay any property taxes in Providence. And yet... Fire and police services are always at the beck and call of Brown University. Brown University's taxes. Providence needs a tax revolt. This was I, I was in Providence in October and that was actually a sign on someone's property, and I thought, wow, that anybody even knows that the the five oh one C threes aren't paying their taxes is wow, that's enlightened. And what's the estimated tax-exempt property of, of owned by nonprofits? Uh, a study that came out a couple of years ago by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy estimated this. Um, I know the uh, author quite well, and I said, uh, and I've, I've discussed with her where she got the data. And I said those data are wrong. That is the most understated value of tax-exempt land I've ever seen. I have talked to the mayors of many cities. Uh, Des Moines had about 60 has about 60 percent of its assessed value is tax-exempt. 60%, and you're showing that, you know, 10 on 11% is the, is the high end for Philadelphia. And she assured me that this is the most conservative measure. They can, they can verify every parcel that's tax exempt, but they can't verify every parcel. So this is a very conservative measure of the value of tax exempt property owned by nonprofits. And so, how do nonprofits contribute to the well being of a municipality? Through payments in lieu of taxes. And yet, who are these? nonprofits, and what are they doing? We, uh, in this room, probably know a lot about the Provena case uh, in which the Supreme Court ruled that Provena did owe uh, property taxes, even though it was a hospital. Um, But it raises questions about how much is enough service service to the indigent or medical service to qualify for tax exemption of many millions of dollars. And this is a conversation that is being uh, conducted all over the country. But the question is, what is the role of nonprofits in providing to the public good? How should we determine that? Is it just by their status as a 501c3, or is there there some other mechanism? Most 501c3s do pay their water bills throughout the United States, and Chicago's will eventually. Most of them already do. So it's not a matter of water or sewer. Or when there are gas, uh, natural gas facilities, it's not the natural gas, but it is the basic provision of services such as public safety and transportation that we need to talk about. The city of, uh, the city of Pittsburgh, the new mayor, uh, about, uh, three, four years ago now, uh, proposed that he's a young guy. He was elected when he was, I believe, 26 years old to be mayor. He was the, the boy mayor, as they called him. Uh, And he looked around and he said, why do I have such a gigantic police force during the day? Well, because you have a lot of people working in the city in the day. Okay. Why do I have such a gigantic police force on Friday and Saturday nights in the Oakland district of the city? Well, because you have two major universities there and you have lots of students with lots of bars and you need to have public safety presence. And he said, so I'm actually having a much larger police force than I need to on a Friday and Saturday night. Yes. How can you help control the cost? Well, we can actually charge the students. He proposed a tuition, a 1% tuition tax on university students in the city of Pittsburgh. You can imagine what that engendered. The presidents and chancellors of the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University and the other numerous universities went ballistic. Uh, he quickly removed it, and they promised to fight uh, her Harrisburg, not themselves, in Harrisburg, to get additional resources to cover the costs rather than the universities themselves. Whole other issue. The point is, there's a recognition on the part of this new mayor that he has a lot of costs in his operating budget that aren't costs of providing services to taxpayers of the municipality. It's due to the need for public safety for those who don't contribute to the general welfare of the municipality. States what are states doing uh, the the amount of state support to municipalities which is the blue line at the bottom, has remained somewhere in the fifty billion dollar neighborhood in, in about uh, and at about uh, twenty twenty percent the red bar is the percentage on the left y axis it, so it, it's averaged around twenty twenty two percent of uh, municipal uh, revenues over the last uh, 40, 50 years now, uh, and and expenditures at about 50 billion. So, in other words, the state contribution to municipal budgets hasn't changed very much as a percentage of municipal spending over the, uh, over the long term. And yet, I think this is no, this is no news and to Illinoisans and to cities in Illinois that uh, to turn to the state and ask for support now is probably out of the question. It's out of the question in other municipalities around the country as well, with projected deficits of only $55 billion in fiscal year 13, the current fiscal year, down from $191 billion in fiscal year 10. Federal aid, uh, the federal government has also uh, uh, reduced its support of municipalities since this is 1972 fiscal years, the, the, the first bar. Uh, by 1977, 78, we refer to this as the high water mark of federal support for municipalities. It amounted to somewhere around 15% of general revenues of municipality to, municipalities. Uh, one of the first things that first Carter, and then Reagan uh, did was to reduce support for municipalities considerably. By 1987 and the uh, elimination of general revenue sharing, it settled into about 5% of municipal revenues uh, since 1987, so for over 25, uh, 25 years now. In other words, it's, it's not a place where cities are going to, to, to find uh, financial support. Okay, so that's sort of the, the backdrop. Now I'd like to talk a bit about Space, the, the fact that revenue structures have a spatial dimension to them. I think something that you're quite familiar with, especially when you look at the property tax and planning uh, issues. Uh, beginning with parcels are identified that maximize revenues or minimize costs. This is an unusual. This is what, as a planner, you look for. City councils are looking for this. The elected officials are looking to increase the revenue flow. but They're also trying to hold down, hold down costs. The point of this is that depending on the preponderance of revenue that a municipality receives, it may be influencing spatial form. So property tax-dependent cities, they think strategically about development based on the market value of the development and the possibility of shifting service delivery costs to other jurisdictions. That's why they invest. You invest because you hope the property values increase. You're taxing the property, which helps you provide services to, uh, to the city. And you end up with a, a, um, a spatial form in which, this, does, this is an, in, in which you want to concentrate your high-valued uh, buildings and structures closer to the center, or at least away from the periphery of the municipality, as a way of capturing all of the spillover effect. You build a nice piece of property. You add something to it. Others do the same thing. It, it spills over to the neighboring jurisdictions. The city taxes that, and it comes in. To put that kind of really nice high end uh, on the edge of the city, nice thing to do, except that the, the benefits, the fiscal spillovers, actually benefit your neighbor and not yourself. So your incentive as a city council member, as a planner, is to have those high... We have, we have cities with our, uh, most of the, the downtown in the cities is in the center of the city. It's not on the fringe of the city. Sales tax cities have a different imperative. They think strategically about development based on the mental construct of a shopping shed in which market uh, transactions are taxable. So what you want to have, if you're a sales tax dependent city, um, is you want to have something that the spatial distribution of your uh, residential and commercial real estate looks something like this. It doesn't much matter whether your residential is, but you want all of your commercial markets to be right on the fringe. Why? because you can keep taxes low here to make sure these people are paying for the consumption of goods that you are able to tax so long as you have a point of sales taxation system which most do so you want to put that mall especially the auto mall right on the edge of the city don't put it downtown that doesn't help put it right on the edge of the city have your neighbors come buy a car buy an expensive car and make sure that the sales tax stays within the city and and that's the so that helps push towards um, maybe expanding the borders or the boundaries of cities farther than we might, linked to sprawl. Um, I use in in these uh, lectures. I use uh, Oklahoma as the state in which the municipalities are almost totally dependent on sales tax revenue for their general fund spending. In other words, they ha- the only the only reason uh, Oklahoma City levies a property tax is to retire uh, any of its debt, its bonds. It's not used for general. Uses the sales tax, and so I found this. Uh, one of my graduate students is from Oklahoma, and he said, "You've got to see this picture." And it didn't come out real clearly, but this is the this is the boundary of a city. I don't remember the name of it, but this is Oklahoma City. Okay, and there's a blue line that the city has painted here, and there's a sign, and the sign says, and "The sign says, um, uh, don't take your sales tax dollars outside of whatever city this is. Don't purchase anything in Oklahoma City." Why? Because if you, if you go, so if you, I don't know what that is, but if you buy something over here and that, you're helping Oklahoma City. You're not helping your own city. So it's interesting that they're actually now putting up a lot. Don't buy goods in Oklahoma City, buy your cars in this. You know. uh, income tax cities, of which there are a, a few, most of the municipalities in the state of Ohio uh, and Kentucky, about 24 in Michigan and about 18 in Alabama, the cities of New York and Yonkers in New York State, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and St. Louis, Missouri. Then there are payroll tax uh, cities such as uh, San Francisco and a couple of others. Most of the income tax cities, uh, high income tax dependent cities, are in the state of Ohio. And what do they think about? You know, what they want is wealthy people to live within their taxing jurisdiction. I'm not sure what the spatial implications of that are, except you really don't want low-income or high unemployment areas in your city. You want them to be in your next city. I'm not, I'm, again, I think that's a I'm not sure what they do there. Uh, Site-value cities, we'll skip by that one. So what are the options? Um, uh, I'm engaged in a, in a fairly large project right now. So I'm engaged in a fairly large, large uh, multi-year project with funding from the MacArthur Foundation with uh, partnerships with the National League of Cities, uh, with the Federal Reserve, regional banks, um, and with, with others, to look at what we refer to as fiscal policy space. Um, one of one of the one of the observations, and something that we all know, if we have worked in a specific city or in a, in a particular area or for a particular government, is that governments are different. What cities can do is different. What they're allowed to do is different, and what the expectation that they do is different. Uh, Most of the academic uh, and other uh, works on fiscal studies about the the fiscal position of municipalities make some really critical assumptions that I think don't hold much water. One is that uh, if only all municipalities had access to all of the revenue sources they could, then you could create an ideal revenue mix and compare that ideal revenue mix with what your city is doing and find where the deficiencies are. Uh, one of my favorite, very detailed analyses of city fiscal conditions recommended at the very end of this, of the study. Our recommendation is, which I absolutely agree with, by the way, our recommendation is that cities that are employment centers, so the central cities, should impose a commuter tax. Great idea. Why? People who are coming into the city to work are still relying on the same public safety and transportation networks that are being provided by the city but aren't being paid for by them even on a minimal basis. So why not have a commuter tax? That's what the income tax in Ohio is. It is a commuter tax. Everybody in the state of Ohio, no matter where they live, unless they live or no matter where they work, unless it's in an unincorporated area, pay a municipal income tax at the place of employment and at the place of residence. Brilliant, I'm wholeheartedly 100% in favor of it. 95% of the states in the United States prohibit their municipalities from imposing a commuter tax. Great advice, not very helpful to the policy officials who are trying to provide some way of providing services to their municipalities. So we try to understand in this project, what's the policy, the fiscal policy space that municipal officials can actually work within, not a hypothetical uh, fiscal policy space, but an actual physical po- fiscal policy space. And they have these kinds of attributes to them, and the, the shape of the fiscal policy space is determined by the interaction of these, what we refer to as uh, attributes. The first is the intergovernmental system, and that is what's the tax authority of the municipality? There is no municipality in the state of Illinois that can tax income, much to my chagrin. I think it's a great idea. The state doesn't allow it. Uh, the the tax and expenditure limitations you know it'd be terrific if we could just increase tax by a little bit more in the state of California you can't do that because property taxes have been maxed out since 1978 Um, uh, revenue reliance and state aid so the state can say look we know we're constraining your fiscal policy space but we're going to give you a lot of money so that you can provide services you need to so one is the intergovernmental system the second is the economic base of course uh, the economic base has to be aligned with the fiscal authority of the municipality. Uh, municipalities in Florida, for example, have a very large unemployed population. They're called retirees. And it's okay that they're unemployed so long as they own property, because when they own property, they're paying property taxes to the municipality, and the cities in Florida are highly dependent on the property tax for providing services. Whether you're employed or not, it doesn't matter. In Ohio, it matters whether you're employed or not. The local legal context, um, uh, many, many cities try to outdo what their state has done or try to impose their own restrictions. So this is uh, examining the tax and expenditure limitations imposed by local governments, by municipal governments. Uh, curiously, uh, there is only one study that has ever looked at this question, and we now have that person working on our, our, our team. Uh, fourth, uh, yeah, consumer demand. Um, you know some of us really like to have our garbage picked up every single day and we're willing to pay for it and some of us think once a week is just fine. What is the collective consumer demand for the services of the municipality? Um, That can be reflected in the budget of the municipalities and other ways of measuring preferences. It's also related to this fifth one that we're a little, this is the fuzzy one, political culture. So we say well of course they do that in Texas. Because they always do things like that in Texas, and of course they do that in New Hampshire. Because and we and you immediately, I think, probably conjured up an image of somebody or some town in Texas or in Vermont or New Hampshire, Maine, wherever these places are. And you're, you're thinking of that. Well, you know, they really do or they really don't care to have taxes and provide service. I can take care of myself. Political culture; it's embedded in in the in the community. Those five are the the, the pieces. I we think that helps structure the fiscal policy space of municipalities. So rather than thinking about municipalities and comparing how well Chicago is doing with uh, New York, which is probably an invalid uh, uh, comparison. Why? Because the city of New York actually has access to an income tax. The city of Chicago does not have access to an income tax. And New York is the only city of the income taxing jurisdictions that tax capital gains. So if you want to see why New York City exploded during the 1990s, The stock market was exploding and the growth in revenue to the city and expenditures was fueled primarily by owners of stock because of capital gains taxes other municipalities around the country do not tax uh, uh, capital gains by the way but these uh, uh, color-coded states give you us an idea and if you can read the really small letters this is an eye test too. you read the really small letters it says that this doesn't apply to every single or every municipality in that state so um, uh, Pennsylvania is green, meaning that it may have access to three of the general sources of revenue. Only one city, Philadelphia, it is the largest, has access to all three revenue sources. No other city, uh, no other city in the state does. Sales tax is prohibited uh, from being uh, employed uh, by the municipalities in the state, except for Philadelphia. Uh, s- same thing in Missouri, only St. Louis and um, yeah, Kansas City can employ the income tax. The other cities employ the sales and, and property tax. So we went through uh, an analysis of reliance, the municipal reliance on different revenues, um, uh, and the effect, the restrictiveness of tax and expenditure limitations. And then we, we did cluster analysis to see, well, given just that intergovernmental variable, that is the state constraint on fiscal policy space, what are the states that are similarly constrained or similarly less constrained? So the blue states are those that actually ha- in which the municipal officials have a little more wiggle room than states in the green yellow we're not sure what to call those um uh, the orange there's at least a tax and expenditure limitation and only one tax source they're only dependent on one tax source and the red states are the most constrained so if you, you, can, you can see most of the red states are actually uh, southwestern and western uh, states, in which the tax and expenditure limitation is very severe. The amount of state aid is very low. State aid to municipalities is very low. And access to revenue sources is, is quite restricted um, as well. The blue states are those that have, and not to say that they, they have the freedom to do whatever they want, but they have, in a relative sense, more fiscal policy space that's constrained by the state. Uh, I'm sorry, less fiscal policy states space that's constrained by the state than the, the cities in the red states. Finally, a new sustainable fiscal architecture. Um, as I began, I, I started by saying uh, I think that we are experiencing something today that we haven't experienced in the past. Uh, one of the, 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 uh, the gra- indicators of that is the graph that shows that during recessionary periods, Sales and income taxes decline, but property tax usually takes about two to three years for it to actually catch up to the the business cycle or the downturn in the economy. And so as the property taxes are beginning to decline in about two or three years, sales and income taxes are picking up again. So we've had this sort of balancing effect of the, uh, the, uh, the fiscal composition of the general funds of municipalities for a very long time. This is the first time that all three sources of revenue because of the length of the great recession have been going in a downward direction and for the first time it appears that in 20 years it appears that uh, real estate growth is not going to rebound to what it was in the 1990s and 2000 but go back to Th- that sort of st- uh, steady state growth that it had in the 1950s and 60s. That's still to be seen, but that's, that's where they're forecasting right now. So given this new normal or a, um, a different kind of uh, fiscal environment today, we consider. If states want cities to be responsible for their actions, they should give them adequate tools, allow them to diversify their revenue sources, authorize access to taxes, and eliminate the tax and expenditure limitations. So one of the first things that I'm always told with this is, but we don't trust the cities. And uh, the TRIB has done a great job in exposing one reason why you can't trust the cities when there's so much lack of transparency in a lot of the actions that the cities have taken. Yeah, okay, throw the bums out, throw them in jail, you can always do that. But my question is, do you trust the state more? The fiscal mismatches is weakening cities. Reform the tax structure. Tax structures might be designed that link closer to a city's underlying engines of growth to income and wealth. Um, this is a plea for uh, municipalities or the states to allow municipalities to think about better ways or other ways of charging a fee for the delivery of services by a municipality rather than imposing the burden on a certain set of individuals. Chicago is an example. There are about 700,000 people who come into the city every day, and then we have no way of charging for public safety, transportation, and other public services that are provided by the city. One of the reasons we have a fairly high tax rate on the residents of the city. Tax on income and wages. I, again, I'm a strong advocate of the, uh, the municipal income tax in, in Ohio. Um, I think if you look at the fiscal position of the city of Cleveland, which is in much worse shape than most any city in the state of Illinois, um, it's not that bad. They've had a rough time, but because people still work in downtown Cleveland, there still is a revenue flow to the city, so the city can provide some services, although the mayor did get thrown out about uh, six years ago because there weren't enough. Uh, The point is, it could have been Buffalo. Buffalo went into the state equivalency of fiscal default. Uh, in 2004. City of Pittsburgh went into fiscal default in in 2003. They're under Act 47 right now, which is a state um, fiscal disparities uh, program. Uh, Broaden the sales tax base. Why is it that we don't tax services? Why is it that we don't tax internet sales? Uh, We don't need to protect the internet sales industry anymore, which is the reason for having the Internet Tax Freedom Act uh, way back in the 1990s. Restructure the property tax uh vacant properties uh, uh um illinois or chicago's a great illustration of what happens that you really can't enforce vacant property ordinances but they they cost more to maintain than other buildings or other uh, vacant structures are much more expensive to maintain by the city than inhabited structures uh it's costing those of us who own the inhabited structures more to maintain the properties that are vacant Jointly provide services, uh, this, is, this is sort of the, the no-brainer of, of thinking about the fiscal architecture, and municipalities have been doing it. What we don't know, and this is a great study for anybody, what we don't know is the extensiveness of joint operations or operative agreements around uh, in the state or any place in the country. We know it's happening, we just know the extensiveness of it, because municipalities have to survive somehow. And so they are finding ways of partnering with regional uh, partners in the provision of services. Pricing drives consumption behavior. I want to take uh, three minutes. Um, And so we do, we, public officials, academics, citizens, we do a terrible job of pricing public services. One of the reasons is that... We forget that when you, in infrastructure in particular, we forget about planning and financing and managing infrastructure assets. Why? Because we all behave much like, I hope I have this in the right order, we all behave like the teenager. No, we don't. I'm sorry. I'm ahead of myself. If we if we underprice an asset, if we say, okay, it's going to cost $100 million for this project, but we only charge for $50 million of it. Well, it does, it brings the price down it doesn't cost us as much. And the effect is that we want more of it. If it's only costing us $50 million for this bridge, let's build two of them for $100 million. The $100 million, maybe we would think about whether we need that second bridge or not. This is the teenage part of it. Any of those, those of you who have t- children, remember what happens when the child turns 15 years old. You remember what you did when you turned 15 years old. You're counting the days before you turn 16 and you can own that car, Right? And what we know is that teenagers, 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds, know the price of the car. They know what it says in the parking lot. And they know they want the coolest car there is. They want, especially the guys, they wanted a car that would attract the women. And then they bought the car. And then they realize it's not just the insurance and taxes, because we all remember that part of it, and the gasoline, we all remember that part of it too, but you're buying a car, you're usually not buying right a brand new one. You're buying a car that probably is going to need repairs. In other words, what we are very good at telling our children, our sixteen-year-olds, is that you have to plan for the repair costs of the vehicle over its useful life. So if it cost five thousand dollars for the car, you ought to set aside another three or five thousand dollars over the next two or three years just for repair, not the insurance, not the gasoline. Not the taxes, but just for the repair costs. Interestingly, that's not what we think about when we become municipal officials. We think about how much does it cost to build, how much does it cost to build the bridge, and so we have these great photo ops with the ribbon cutting ceremonies, and the mayor, the governor. Nice photo; it's on the front page of the Trib. It's just beautiful, and it only cost—and we have a dollar figure. There's a price tag attached to it. Let's say the price tag was $100 million. Yeah, that's what it cost to cut the ribbon. Then once the first car or truck that drives over the bridge, it's starting to deteriorate because we're consuming it. And we know that when we own houses, and we know that when we own cars. We know that we're going to have repair costs, and we prepare for them, and we don't prepare for them as municipalities or as any local government, which is one of the reasons why the association the american society of civil engineers has estimated our infrastructure deficit at 1.3 trillion dollars which i don't even know what that means there is a way of addressing the problem the state of utah when it builds a building it dedicates 1.1% of the value of the fixed asset in a maintenance fund that can only be used to maintain and repair the building now think about that you have a 100 million dollar bridge hundred million dollars state office building and every year you have to set aside 1.1 percent of the value of that asset every year the legislature can't touch that maintenance fund that's only for that asset I suspect we'd have a whole lot fewer buildings and bridges and fixed assets or our tax bills would be much higher okay and finally My last point is, I think this is the time to revisit the social compact. The social compact that we had between the citizens and the taxpayers and and the municipalities uh, is a legacy of something that precedes the enormous growth and explosion of of metropolitan America, and we need to have that conversation. Um, We need to have that conversation again. We need to think about fairness of revenue systems. We need to think about the effects that revenue structures have on sprawl and spatial development of land. We need to think about who can pay and who could be subsidized consciously think about who should be subsidized not automatically assuming that just because it's a 501 c3 it ought to be subsidized pro cyclical nature of local and state budget practice and this is for the planners uh, the, the 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 budget planners is understanding that there is a cyclical nature to uh, to budgets uh what do we do with the long-term liabilities pensions um opebs or uh, other post-employment benefits primarily health benefits uh, and infrastructure that we've accumulated and we've, we're leaving, and it's no longer to our grandchildren, it's to our great-grandchildren and beyond. What are the core services? Do we need all of the services that are being provided by municipalities? or We need to rethink that. And then how do we p- better price the services and infrastructure assets so that we can cover the costs of repair for the useful life of the asset rather than only until the time that we cut the ribbon? And we need to think about horizontal and vertical regional partnerships in service delivery as a metropolitan unit rather than as individual units competing with each other. And I think, yes, and that's the end. Um, I I am uh, I I open this up to any conversation, right, David? So absolutely. Yes. And- so, yeah,
0: at this point, uh, we, we certainly have time to take a few questions, so just put your hands up. I'll come to you with the microphone so we can record your questions for the podcast. Thanks.
2: Hi. Uh, my question was regarding the commuter tax, uh-huh. and we've seen a lot of move towards telecommunications by various uh, companies allowing for flex time of their employees. Right. How, do, does the, how do those states and municipalities which have enacted a commuter tax address that issue? of an individual no longer using their services, but still maybe potentially having to pay that uh,
1: tax? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and there are court cases that uh, in state courts that are trying to determine this. So if you, have, um, if you have an income tax in your city, New York City's got a zillion of these things, but you're only working in the city of New York one day a week, and you live in New Jersey, and you're, you're telecommuting the other four days, do you only owe 10, uh, 20% of your salary to, to the, uh, in taxes to the city? Uh, and the other eighty uh, percent, and I don't know what the courts are deciding at this point. Prior, I would I would have said that if your place, if your place of employment is in the city, is in a place that you are taxed at that place, unless you are specifically prohibited from coming to work on those days.
3: Um, thank you for the presentation. I had a question regarding um, kind of your methodology. Are you taking into account, let's just take Chicago, for example, Uh that when the recession hits, obviously there's no more money in the government's budgets, right? So then you have these entities called TIF, and then you have another entity called, let's say, SSA, special service area. Mm -hmm. Years back in Chicago, they had redevelopment areas Mm -hmm. where you just put a blanket around and then you're able to tax individual homes, individual businesses, and different things like that. How much of that analysis are you taking into account? Because I guess what would be really interesting for me is to know after the recession, Do you get more of that? Are there more TIF districts assigned? Are there more special service areas assigned? And are those SSAs and TIFs um, generating income to do services that once the government would provide streets cleaning, Uh, some of the SSAs are now using their own security forces for police. So I'd like to know how much of that analysis and study are you going to incorporate into your analysis, but basically TIFs SSAs and other entities around the nation that use those taxing entities?
1: As a two-party answer. One is that in the study we will be incorporating those other taxing jurisdictions. Uh, the report that I gave here from um, the, on the general fund financing would not include any TIFs or SSAs because they're in, in separate fund accounts. They're not accounted for in the general fund of the city. But yes, you are, you are absolutely right. It is an integral part of the, the fiscal well-being of a municipality. How well Areas or pockets of the city are having services delivered to it that uh, in which and and not being delivered in other parts of the city.
2: Uh, You mentioned that sharing services was
0: something that municipalities can look at. And uh, my question is since the recession, have you seen an increase in that? And have you seen an increase of municipalities taking it one step further and going merger or amalgamations? Uh,
1: To the latter, no. To the former, uh, there is no database. Um, anecdotally, I hear a lot of stories. Talking with mayor, and especially in the Chicago region, you hear a lot of stories of, of municipalities partnering with others and fire districts consolidating. But in terms of of municipal consolidations, um, not yet.
2: Um, you've talked a lot about increasing the revenue for the cities, and you you mentioned that maybe a commuter tax or something like that for the Part-time visitors to the city, either for work or, or leisure, they can be taxed. To me, I'm, I'm not so much concerned about that. It seems like they pay that in in hotel taxes or food mm-hmm. consumption or something like that. Mm-hmm. Have you do you have any comment into maybe shifting the tax burden from from the uh, from the residents? For example, if you get a tax bill, only a very small portion of that is towards municipal taxes. You know, you have. School district, park district, right. sanitary district, library, you name it. You know, pension funds, they have separate taxing things. And that seems to be very disproportionate and unjust, for example, for, for older residents. Mm-hmm. Why do they have to pay sc- you know sc- school district taxes? If somebody that doesn't use, use parks, why do they have to pay so much in parks to somebody that uses them all the time? Mm-hmm. It seems like that may be shifting that burden a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe if state is no longer helping municipal governments, maybe they need to help these other bodies that cannot survive only on, on user fees. Mm-hmm. Is there any comment on that?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you've opened up the whole concept that I was trying to outline at the end. We need to have a new social compact. Um, I tried to run a school levy years ago when I lived in another state, and it was really interesting the elderly population would not support a property tax increase because they said, you know, we're, we're on fixed incomes. And we said, okay then we'll, uh, we'll move to, at the time, uh, this is the state of Ohio, uh, school districts could also impose an, uh, an income tax. And, and then the, uh, the elderly said, oh, we don't want to support that either because all of our, our income will be... So uh, so what is the issue? And I think the issue is that we need to engage in a broad conversation in the community about, didn't elderly at one time benefit from the schools? And when they went to school, who paid the property taxes? Probably their grandparents, so are we trying to exempt a generation of people from contributing to a social good? So I raised the question, what is a social good? Maybe education is no longer a social good. Maybe it is a private good. And we no longer care about providing a social good like that. And, and everybody ought to pay tuition to go to school. That's a conversation that we need to have as a, as a community. But if we believe it's a social good, then we need to design a system in which there is fair payment into that good to provide it so that everyone has access to it whether they can afford it or not if it is a private good and you know we do have private schools right and we do have private toll roads we do have most services we even have uh, we used to have the pinkney we have we have private guards do we need a public police force a city police force i don't know i know where i live i'd be well protected what's my social obligation what's our social commitment to ourselves as a community
2: there seems to be a uh, sort of a current debate up in Evanston with Northwestern and the city and um, you know the school as you mentioned in your uh, illustration I think with Brown if you were hired by the school to make a you know analysis what do you what would you look at in the sense of trying to defend why Northwestern shouldn't be taxed with respect to how much money those students actually send into the coffers?
1: Uh, send How do the students send into the co- – oh, into the well, university's coffers?
2: N- no, into the um, – The city's coffers? Sure, just in- by, you know, the, the – restaurants, the art supply houses, the few bars that they have?
1: Yeah, yeah I, I, I met a development director from the University of Chicago in which I was talking about the municipal income tax and as a fair, and he said, he said, well, we shouldn't pay anything. Do you realize that we, are, we hire, I can't remember the tens of thousands of people that are hired by the University of Chicago, and we're contributing to the economic base of the, of the region. Okay, if that's the case, why doesn't Aon pay taxes? Why would any private sector employer pay taxes? They're generating economic wealth and growth to the, commun- to, the, to, the, to the region. So if it's an employment generation argument, don't tax us because we're employing so many people, um, then everybody's exempt. And if that's the case, then how do we provide, how do we provide services to the, the general public? What's the principle that we use to provide services to the general public? Um, what I would say if I were at Northwestern is that if we had our own police and fire system and our own hospital, if we maintained our own streets, water, transportation network, sidewalks, streetlights, then they shouldn't pay a dime to the city of Evanston. If they are consuming those public goods, then why do they get them free? There should be some payment in lieu of taxes, and it should be commensurate with what they use.
0: I think for the sake of time, we'll let that be the final word. Let's have a round of applause for Michael Pagano. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Michael Pagano for a thought-provoking and informative program on municipal finance after the Great Recession. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.